Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today in the Scanner Studio are Fritz Hamer, who's currently at the Carolinian Library at USC, but for the project we're going to talk about from the Smithsonian, he is the state scholar. We have T.J. Wallace from the Humanities Council South Carolina and Allison Darby from the Belton Area Museum Association, where she is education coordinator. So first of all, folks, welcome to the journal. Good Thank to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And we're going to be talking about hometown teams. And this is a project that originated with Smithsonian, so I'm going to toss it to you, TJ, and Fritz about general what the program is and how South Carolina ended up. We're going to have exhibits around the state for an entire year. Well, the exhibit Hometown Teams, How Sports Shape America, is from the Smithsonian Institution's Traveling Exhibit Services program called Museum on Main Street. And it's a program that was developed in the early 90s um, specifically to bring high-quality traveling exhibits to small-town museums and rural communities across the country. And the Humanities Council of South Carolina has been involved in the Museum on Main Street program from the Smithsonian since 2004, was when we brought our first Museum on Main Street exhibit to the state called Barn Again. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've had also Key Ingredients, an exhibit that was about American foodways, and New Harmonies, an exhibit about um, American roots music. And Hometown Teams is the fourth exhibit that we've brought to the state, and we're really excited about the tour in 2015. Well, this is a compa- I mean, they just don't plop it in South Carolina. You have to compete for this, correct? Well, we have to um, a- apply through the Smithsonian, yes, to bring the exhibit to the state. And um, we're excited that we were able to bring hometown teams in 2015 because it's one of their newer exhibits. All right. It's going to be, it's already been one place. It's already been in Denmark. It's going to be at six different locations. How, do, how were those locations chosen? That was a competitive process. We issued a request for proposals, and we received um, 12 proposals for six available slots. And we had a committee that came together to take a look at the applications, and we selected the six communities that, um, that you have mentioned, um, Denmark, Gaffney, Belton, uh, Georgetown, Slater, and Manning were the successful communities. And some people might not know where Slater is. Slater is north of Greenville, it's, in Greenville it, County. It's almost to the very tip top of Greenville County where things sort of come together. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, right up in that. And I went to Furman University and I had never heard of Slater <laughs> until this exhibit. So it's exciting to be a part of that small town. All right. How large is the exhibit? It is 800 square feet, and it's designed by the Smithsonian to be um, very easy to install, very flexible for a variety of exhibit spaces, since these um, small towns may not have huge um, rooms to be able to exhibit in, and it's low security as well. You have that as the basis. Are there local teams that are then highlighted, or is is this just a static exhibit? What's the... Well, that's the wonderful thing about the Museum on Main Street program. While the exhibit itself, designed by the Smithsonian, has a national scope in talking about sports, with a few references that are specific to South Carolina in it, but each local community then designs their own local exhibit that highlights South Carolina sports history and, more specifically, even their local community's sports history. I heard her say, Fritz, this national exhibit has a few mentions about South Carolina. What are they? Well, uh, there are uh, two specific ones. The most obvious one that they've taken is the Clemson-Carolina rivalry, uh, discussing uh, Big Thursday. And uh, they actually have a a program for the 1959 Big Thursday, the last Big Thursday game here in Columbia. So that's one highlight. And then the other is Althea Gibson, who was a native of Clarendon County and was the first African-American to uh, be invited to uh, the U.S. Open tennis title games in uh, 1950 and then would later become champion in 1956 and 57, as well as at Wimbledon. So she was a real pathbreaker who was a South Carolina native. Right, and in our local display, we will have her South Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame jacket on display. Oh, oh. Okay. And Allison, well, let's just zoom in. And what are you going to be doing in 
in Belton in terms of highlighting local sports to go along with the national exhibit? Well, as TJ mentioned, uh, we have many, many different programs that we will be doing throughout the six weeks it's in the Belton community. In addition to the exhibit the Smithsonian put together, we will have highlighting the rich tennis history in Belton because, of course, the Palmetto Tennis Tournament originated there and has been going strong for 53 years. And if you're a junior South Carolina tennis player and you want to qualify, you have to come through Belton and win at the Palmetto. So that will be highlighted. And um, we also have, of course, a rich mill baseball heritage. So we will be highlighting that and we've partnered with the Greenville Drive and they will be recognizing the players who are still in, alive. We're going to carry them up now, there. Now that's the name of the, the, the professional team in Greenville the now. The professional team. That, the Greenville Drive. Drive, okay. Yes, okay. yes. They're a single A uh, Sally League team. Right. And uh, they of course, send players to the other. I can't remember what they're a farm team for. They're a farm team for the Boston Red Sox. Boston Red Sox, which is interesting. Which, which of course, have had a long history connection to South Carolina, Mr. Yawkey and the... Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, down in Georgetown. Georgetown, mm-hmm. Sunset Lodge. So we'll be carrying several people who are were mill baseball players up there, and they'll be recognized in front of the... In front of the crowd and get to throw out the first baseball and that kind of thing. But they're also the students, our fifth grade students have been working with the Smithsonian on a documentary project. And we have seven teachers, 12 projects, and 281 fifth graders who wow. have been interviewing local sports greats from our community. And they're going to be putting together documentary films. And three of those documentary films are about the history of baseball, mill baseball, which has been very interesting because we had Chicola Mill, which was in our sister city, Honeyapath, and Belton, which is, later became Abney Mill. And so there are two projects on that, but they're also on some of the sports greats who left our small towns and went to the professional leagues, and vice versa, who left the professional leagues, got a job in the mill, and played on the the sports teams. You mentioned mill teams. What about basketball? That was also a big... Huge thing, yes. And basketball, uh, of course, the Greenville Textile League at the Textile League facility in Greenville had a huge tournament every December. Yeah, at Textile Hall. At Textile Hall, exactly. And many of the mill teams would have those players. Up until the 1960s and early 70s, they played Well, see, that's what I was going to ask you is how long the mill teams existed because that that was so important to small towns, and that was the center of of public activity. Absolutely. In Belton, our first team was 1903. Chicola Mill had their first team around 1912, somewhere in there. And then, of course, the heyday of the teams were in the 1930s when the players were paid by the mills to play baseball and play baseball only. That We have actually interviewed people who have told us that those people who were hired in the 30s would be given a hammer, and their job all day long was to go and see if they could find a nail to hammer. (laughs) Or that they would sit under the shade tree and count the number of cars that would go by, and in the 1930s, how many would that be? You know, that would be their job, because their main job was to play baseball. So they, they were supposed to be mill employees, therefore amateurs, but their jobs were... Mm, that has a familiar ring to that. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, it brought great notoriety to the mills. Well, before every, people could afford automobiles and before television, uh, textile league ball and then to some degree ba- uh, textile ba- basketball was the center of community. Um, and, and it was across the upstate and it, it came down to the Midlands, uh, the Olympia Mill and even the duck mill, they had ball teams, and they uh, they had huge games and lots of rivalries. And, you know, these mill workers who often worked uh, at least into the 20s, six days a week and then five and a half days, their big thing often was to go to a ball game uh, on the weekends or maybe on occasion they might play a night game, but mostly they, they played on the weekends, and uh, that was huge. Um, yeah. And, we, and it, it really begins in the, it starts in the 1890s. 
it, it's kind of hard to document it before then, but I'm sure it was starting in the 1880s. Right. Well, there was some work done, particularly, I think, in Piedmont. Uh, Donna Roper's Don- father did some mm-hmm. work on the on the baseball. Tennis. Yeah, I relied on him a lot when I mm-hmm. did an exhibit at the State Museum on, on uh, in part on textile ball. And, and I'm sure his were, were late 19th century teams there at Piedmont. Right, yeah, Piedmont was supposed to have had one of the top teams in the late 1890s. They traveled around and even went into Georgia. Well, let's see what's interesting. Of course, baseball wasn't inter- didn't appear in South Carolina uh, until the Union occupation during Reconstruction. That's where the baseball... Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a few references to introducing the game before the Civil War, but it really didn't take off until federal troops occupied here. Well, students didn't do sports. I mean, you'd try to find it in the, in the history of, of whether you'd read in Dan Hollis or Green or any of the older histories university. No, uh, but you had golf. Huh? You had golf down in Charleston. Mm, not really. Not in, in terms that of That would college. be an elitist kind of thing. And right. Very few people would have been involved in But it was not a big game, and it was not something you read planner's journals. You're not going to say, I played golf today. Right. They would talk about hunting, right. fishing. Horse racing. Horse racing particularly horse racing, that, that kind of thing. And students, I thought maybe they would duel with with, <laughs> with uh, uh, swords, but I can't find any reference to the that. The closest to competition, I think, was debating. That was right. huge. Ab- yes, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. Throughout the 19th century. And that wasn't just at Carolina. I mean, you've got, you go to Erskine, you've got the Literary Society halls there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, was, that was the big thing. Mm-hmm. It almost was how young men auditioned for jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who won the debate? I mean, that's, for example, how James Henry Hammond, a schoolmaster's son on scholarship at South Carolina College, did great in the debate. The next thing you know, he's hired to be a newspaper editor and mm-hmm. and moves on up. Mm-hmm. But we're digressing a little bit. But it's it's a part of, of what people were doing, as you mentioned, Fritz, before a lot of automobiles, before television. Uh, everything was local. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, part of part of the community. And uh, I'm glad you're doing basketball because, you know, we celebrate basketball in the state now, particularly women's basketball. But in the textile leagues, there were women's basketball teams. And in rural high schools, there were women basketball. Now, the rules were a whole lot different back then, right? Right. Only half court. Only half court. And they actually had real baskets, <laughs> the kind that you would pick fruit in. <laughs> that would be their basket. It had to be a bushel basket. Yes, it had to be. Exactly. Not not a bean basket because it's too <laughs> too narrow for the ball to go through. But only one of the sports that was considered feminine enough for women to play. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have softball teams. You didn't have volleyball teams. Those are sports that were inappropriate for a woman to play. Mm-hmm. Women played tennis. And we have a picture in our museum of uh, tennis players, women tennis players in their long skirts with beautiful long white sleeve dresses with bow ties in the 1900s. So it's really interesting. Now, since we're talking about the Smithsonian Traveling Exhibit, right now, TJ, it's in Gaffney and will be until the end of May. And we just finished in Denmark. Where is it going for the rest of the year? It's in Gaffney um, now through May 31st. It will be in Belton with Allison from June 6th through July 19th. Then it moves to Georgetown from July 25th through September 6th. It'll be in Slater from September 12th through October 25th. And then the tour concludes in Manning from October 31st through December 13th. The title of the exhibit is? Hometown Teams, How Sports Shape America. Okay, and then as as we pointed out earlier, local community it's not they're not always a museum. A local community group brings in local attractions or local connections to the exhibit. Right, and and many of these local host sites are um, organizations that may not have ever had the opportunity to bring a traveling Smithsonian exhibit to their community before. Um, and that's why the Museum on Main Street program kind of came to exist. The, um, the folks at the Smithsonian realized that local museums were these vibrant facilities that served as community centers and were able to 
offer exciting public programs and act as repositories for local history, but were restricted often from bringing major traveling exhibits because of budgets and insufficient staff. And the Museum on, um, on Main Street program has this compact, easy-to-implement package of an exhibit that, that's tailored specifically to um, the needs of small museums. And looking at, we, we mentioned the towns, and I went on to the national site. I was just curious because they have the whole list of everywhere they're going in the, in the country. And in Denmark, that was at Christchurch Parish Hall. In Gaffney, it's going to be at the Visitor Center, the Belton Area Museum Association. And by the way, their acronym is BAMA. Uh, <laughs> A little bit too far upstate to roll tide, but they... <laughs> no, we say go Bears. <laughs> they go Bears, okay. In Georgetown, it will be at the Georgetown County Museum. And then in Slater, it's the Community Center. And in Manning, it's Weldon Auditorium, which I think used to be part of one of the old high schools. Yes, Manning High. Manning High. Mm-hmm. So, as TJ, exactly what you said, it's not always a museum, but it's a community group. And in many cases, these are all historic buildings. Yes, and what's wonderful is often the, these groups that are hosting the exhibit, some of them are all-volunteer. Denmark was an example of that. They were an all-volunteer group. There was actually no location in Denmark to act as a, a venue. There's no museum. They couldn't um, you know, work with any of the other larger spaces, so they ended up putting the exhibit up at a church venue, like you said. And they did a wonderful job, this all-volunteer group, of pulling together. They made a wonderful local exhibit that highlighted local sports history that surrounded the entire wall of this parish hall in in the church. Just amazing. And they said that so many people came just to see the local exhibit, to, to read their own names, to read their father's names, to read their children's names on this local exhibit and, and what they had done um, in sports in, in Denmark, South Carolina. Well, Fritz, do you think sports today, high school sports, are still as much a center of the community as they were 40 or 50 years ago? Uh, I think they, they, they're more so in some ways because uh, not only are people fascinated, attracted to the high school teams, but there's even more incentives uh, for good or bad for these uh, athletes from these high schools to go on. And, of course, because of that, we have this desire by parents and coaches to see these players in whatever sports, particularly the big ones, football, basketball, and baseball, to get a college scholarship, which is not only prestigious, but it's also financially very nice so that parents don't have to pay uh, tuition or much reduced tuition. And, and then, of course, there is the ambition, ultimately, to be a professional. And, of course, if you, you're that fortunate, that good, there's very lucrative advantages in those three big sports. Allison, you were, I could see you were just chomping at the bit to talk about high school sports in Belton. Well, I was just going to say that small communities like Belton and Honeypath, we have to drive a great distance to get to a mall or get to a theater or get to a performance or something like that. So sports on the high school level draws everybody on a Friday night to the football stadium or on Tuesdays and Fridays to the baseball stadium. The whole community rallies around those teams. Such a civic pride that's involved in that. So You are now, it's a consolidated high school, yes. right? It's mm-hmm. built in Honeyapad. Right. Uh, and that's happened across South Carolina. So in many cases, what was once one town's football team is now shared, and you've had consolidation. Right. Mm-hmm. And something interesting about that, one of the documentary films our students is work, are working on is about the integration of sports in BHP, and that was during the school year 1966 to 67. Of course... Oh, no, you said B- that's Honey Belton Honeypath okay. High School. That's okay. correct. BHP. Um, and so that was also during integration. Mm-hmm. And so you had the town of Honeypath and the town of Belton, who were bitter rivals over the years, coming together with Gear Gant High School, which was the African-American high school. So the it, it was not forced that first year. Those students who were from Gear Gant could come to BHP um, if they wanted to. 
and 32 African Americans from our community chose to go to BHP that first year. During the very first football game, everybody from Belton and Hanapath and all summer long had been the talk. Who's going to score the first touchdown? Is it going to be a player from Belton or is it going to be a player from Honeyapath? And that first game came off on the first play. An African-American who chose to integrate BHP scored on a 55-yard run and the crowd erupted because it wasn't somebody from Honeypath or Belton. It was somebody from Gant that had won. <laughs> had that been the only black high school in the county? That's the only black high school for the two towns. For the two towns. Right. And so they were absolutely, it, it made tremendous strides in integrating our school and not causing the bitter problems that integration caused in other schools because sports led the way. Yeah, that's something that I've, some scholars are, have, when they look at integration in sports, they say if it wasn't for these athletes in the black community, integration would have been a lot slower, a lot harder in some cases. Mm-hmm. And when we interviewed, we interviewed the coach, the African-American player who scored the first touchdown and one of his teammates who was from the other town and a, a white teammate. And we asked, the white teammate said over and over, J.E. went through a lot of really bad stuff. But he said, I will tell you, he was a man and, and just, you know, did not let that color how he reacted, and it was successful for him. He went on college scholarship, football college scholarship. So, I mean, you know, it was amazing. Now, folks, we have to pause a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Fritz Hamer, T.J. Wallace, and Allison Darby about the Smithsonian exhibit Hometown Teams and about small museums and the importance of sports in their communities. What are some of the specific stories? We've already mentioned the two South Carolina connections, but what are some others in the the national exhibit? Well, uh, the exhibit is divided into seven sections, and it has different themes. Um, And so, for example, uh, More Than a Game talks about how sports has evolved beyond just the playing field, you know, the advertising. You know, for example, Wheaties and how it adopted these sports stars to promote its cereal, going back to the 1930s. It doesn't mention earlier than that the tobacco cards, does it? Uh, It does. (laughs) That's mentioned. It has to because that's really the first. You're right. (laughs) But Wheaties is something people, uh, well, we still see it. Uh, And then it talks about, for example, uh, some of the great films that have come out of uh, on sports. You know, everyone probably knows, remembers Hoosiers about that small town basketball team in Indiana that went all the way to the state final in 1953. Got to win one for the Gipper. The Lou Gehrig story. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Remember the Titans is uh, about an integration in Virginia uh, in the early 70s and how this Virginia team you know, went through a lot of problems initially integrating and then went on to win the state title. Uh, that's what reminded me of that story. First, before we go on, I threw in tobacco cards when you're talking about advertising. And some people not, might not know what tobacco cards were, but those were the, uh, we grew up with the bubblegum cards of the baseball players. Right. These were in the pack of cigarettes, and it was promoting, and I think what's the what, most valuable is the Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner is, I think, the most valuable uh, card that came out of that uh, era. Yeah, we're talking about from the turn of the 20th century, actually a bit before then. Yeah, it starts, and it begins in the 1890s, and they really take off in the 1900s. Yeah, and people, you know, there were every Brand collection. Up. You wanted to have the all of the Boston Red Sox or... Or whatever. The St. Louis Browns, maybe not, but I mean, they were one of the <laughs> lowliest uh, major league teams for their, their, their existence. But, uh, yeah, and, and now, of course, they're very collectible and very valuable. Of course, Cooperstown in New York has some very significant cards, but even the Met in New York City has a very important uh, collection of these tobacco baseball cards. Yeah. So, anyway, that that's just a historical footnote to the promotion of of sports. Uh, So what's the second part of the 
exhibit? Well, some uh, is uh, take me out to the ballpark and, you know, some facts about, uh, you know, traditions. For example, who was the first president to throw out the first pitch uh, for the beginning of the baseball season? That was President William Taft in 1910. Apparently, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but, I, you know, he was not like his predecessor, Teddy Roosevelt. He was not popular. I suspect this was one way he hoped that he could integrate himself as a more, uh, what, uh, popular leader, president of the nation. Uh, talks about uh, the fans and, and how important they evolved. And uh, the first cheerleading squad it was uh, apparently Princeton University in the 1880s. But, of course, in these days, women were not cheerleading. Now, that was against the rules. These were all men. And women really didn't start the cheerleading women that we've become so familiar with in uh, football and basketball today. Those don't really start appearing uh, until the 1920s and 30s in a much more uh, conservative fashion, shall we say. Another little fact, what was the first pro football team to have a cheerleading squad? Well, it was the Green Bay Packers in 1931, where they brought in local high school cheerleaders to promote their... Well, their they could not have been scandally clad in Green Bay. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, women in, in the 30s and 40s, when they came out in their cheerleading uniforms, were very conservatively dressed with uh, dresses that went down uh, past the, well past the uh, knees. And there was a certain amount of athleticism in it, but not to what we could see, we watch today. Some other um, things... Um, well, I talked mentioned about rivalries and uh, the fact that uh, the Clemson-Carolina rivalry is uh, mentioned. And, of course, they talk about other important uh, rivalries uh, in, say, Major League Baseball. Boston and uh, New York Yankees is a huge thing that goes back to the 20s and uh, is still alive and kicking today very, very much. Uh, it talks also about uh, important sports heroes. Althea Gibson, as I said, one of my favorites who's also highlighted is Jim Thorpe, who was uh, an Indian, Native American from Oklahoma, who for his generation at the beginning of the 20th century, I think, was probably the top athlete in, in the United States, if not the world. For example, at the 1912 uh, Olympics in Sweden, he won both the gold medal in the decathlon and the pentathlon, which is just unheard of. Um, and uh, he was also a top football player. He took the little Carlisle Indian College team, which was basically an industrial school in Pennsylvania, taking on the mighty teams like Army, Notre Dame, and beating them. Incredible. So these are some of the highlights that come out to me, and there's many others as you go through the exhibit. There's okay. even a section on extreme sports and some of the contemporary sports that have developed recently that have become very popular, like roller derby, and even Quidditch is mentioned in the exhibit, believe it or not. So uh, well, it runs the spectrum of, of history into contemporary times. Well, well, now, I know how Harry Potter plays Quidditch, but how, <laughs> how do real people play Quidditch? There is actually a very involved rule book. I, I had happened to look at it online one time, but there's some very specific guidelines, but they just run around with... with oh, um, so they don't get on brooms. With brooms. They run around with <laughs> they brooms. They, hold, with they have to hold them, but yeah. <laughs> they haven't quite figured out that dynamics of... Love gravity it. yet to do what they do in the movies. I guess with the age of drones, we might see. <laughs> the snitch could be a drone. <laughs> um, so, so Allison, what are some of the? We've already talked about some of the stories, but what what about artifacts or things like that that you're going to have on display in in Belton? Well, um, we will have the very first football that was used in the first football game. It will be on display and and what and what first football game of the integrated B belton honeypath high school team oh, okay um we will have althea gibson's south carolina state uh, hall of fame jacket uh, we will have items from the south carolina tennis hall of fame which is uh we're stewards of that in the belton depot and so there will be there are 
lawn rackets from the 1890s. There are balls that are completely different from what we experience now. There will be trophies and gloves and bats and pictures from the mill baseball days in our area. There will be an area on uh, water sports because we have a, a lake close to us so there will be some things on display from the Anderson ski bugs and um, fishing and hunting things in the exhibit all kinds of things we're still asking community members to bring things to us to put on display well Bama is a, is a small group but when for example somebody brings in photograph of the textile teams are you copying those to have a permanent record because mm-hmm. sometimes people don't want to part with those particular items. Absolutely. We've actually been going to people and using a handheld scanner and scanning on site, which has been wonderful because it's a great permanent record for us to have digitally. We can print it out, but we can also put it on display and their original items are still kept with there. Okay. So that belongs to the association. That's Yes, thank goodness, because of the Smithsonian grant that we got through the Youth Access to be able to do the documentary films, we needed a scanner. So that was able to be purchased. So part of the grant was that. Okay, that's that's what I was, you know, so this is more, TJ, it's more than just an exhibit. It really provides, in this case, a permanent resources for the local association. Yes, having a museum on Main Street exhibit in the local community, the Humanities Council of South Carolina hopes that it'll provide professional development opportunities, long-term benefits, including increased membership to the museum, increased docent activity at the local community or the local museum. There's a lot of opportunities that the local um, community can can use the Smithsonian exhibit to to build on. Absolutely. Getting people into the museum is the biggest thing. Belton is in one of the little corners of Anderson County, and often when visitors drive to Belton specifically to come to the museum, they'll say, this is the best kept secret of Anderson County. They had no idea that we even existed. Having the Smithsonian and a budget to do promotions and advertising and things like that draws people in our doors who otherwise may not have ever entered our doors. Uh, We were participants of the Key Ingredients exhibit through the MOMS program in 2007, and 200-fold we were able to increase the foot traffic in our museum because of the Smithsonian and the Humanities Council. I cannot sing their praises enough uh, helping us bring this to our community. You used an acronym, and we all do. You said MOMS, and that's the Museum on Main Street. Absolutely. And your museum is in the old depot. It is. It is. The historic Belton train depot was a combined Southern and Blue Ridge Railroad depot that was built in 1908, and uh, it was decommissioned in 1978 and taken over by the city and renovated in 1981. And then in 2006, we went through another renovation. And now in 2015, we're going through another renovation Mm. because, of course, we have to keep up with ADA compliance and things like that. But it houses the Ruth Drake Museum, which is our local permanent collection, a genealogy room as well, resources there. We also have the South Carolina Tennis Hall of Fame that's located there, our North End Gallery, which is the exhibition area for rotating exhibits, and then we also have the Center Section Performance Hall where weddings, concerts, and things like that will happen. And during the six weeks, every community was asked to create activities that would go along with the exhibit. So we're having a film fest. You mentioned the film festival. So we have four films that have chosen. One of them is A League of Our Own, uh, A League of Their Own, which was about the All-American Girls Baseball League. Uh, One Belton native, who is Viola Griffin, She was Viola Thompson Griffin. She is going to be there to sign autographs and talk about her playing days with the All-American Girls Baseball League. And then we'll show the film. We have a horse whisperer. 
His name is Mike Kinsey, and he's going to be there doing a clinic before we show Secretariat. And then we have Radio Kennedy, who is from Anderson, and he will be on hand and sign autographs. And then uh, Days of Thunder, we have a NASCAR driver from Belton who will be there. His name's Justin Sorrow. He will be there to sign autographs and talk well, about that. That's, film that's wonderful. I yeah. mean, and the fact that you, the films that you chose, all you were able to come up with a local connection. You found somebody that you could you could bring in. I think that's just great. Absolutely. I think every small community has some kind of connection, regardless of whether it's sports or something else. You're, you're obviously very excited about what what's happening, and you're you're involving the community. And TJ, that's the whole purpose behind museum on main street is to get the small communities involved it's a wonderful program it's a national program but you folks at the humanities council south carolina the locations have you worked that i just think it's fantastic Thank you. The Museum on Main Street program really is a wonderful and unique program in in the sense that it is a three-tier program that involves the national level of the beautiful Smithsonian exhibit so wonderfully and put together with such careful attention to detail, the state level with the Humanities Council working to provide grants and professional development opportunities and um, other opportunities, and then the local element of the local host sites with all the rich Um, heritage that they have to bring to the table of their own local history, such as what Allison has been telling us about today. So it's a really unique program in that it brings those three different um, partners together. And Fritz, I'm intrigued by your involvement because you started out working with colonial history and then you became a military historian. When did you become a sports historian? Well, I guess it started uh, in the 1990s when I began work on this small exhibit on baseball history, and uh, it seemed to me... This is in your state museum. When I was at the state museum, and uh, there's so much rich history there because sports is just part of it in that you have so many people in the community that are that support it and get something out of it if it's not emotional, and, and as time goes go on, it, there's some economic connections mm-hmm. Uh, and the social part of it. And in the 20th century and now the 21st century, it's almost gone beyond what may be healthy at times, to be frank, but it, it's still so, it's, it's iconic now in our society. Yeah, but I mean, she mentioned a baseball player and you knew exactly who he was. You knew who the woman who played in the girls' league. So this goes beyond just dealing with sports in general. You've really mastered all of that. that well, I'm, I'm trying. I, I guess if I may use a story out of that exhibit we did at the State Museum in 1990s. Once the exhibit was up, we got a lot of interest from people, and out of the blue came a, uh, a son of a pretty prominent uh, pitcher from Richland County who uh, ended up uh, playing with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1930s and early 40s named Kirby Higby who was a, uh, a mill boy, uh, not well-educated, but he was quite a pitcher. And he, was, he led an uh, American Legion team here when, in about 1932 all the way to the, the uh, Nationals before they lost. And what we got out of that is the pennant belt that all the players on the Brooklyn Dodgers earned when they won the pennant in 1941 and some other items. So what this exhibit that's coming to Belton is going to probably, it already has, but even more material from the local community is going to come to your museum, and some of it's going to end up in your collection. And that's what's so great about these exhibits. So when Kirby Higby, when the Dodgers won the pennant, they got a belt? Yeah, they had a belt, and it's, it's, you know, it's almost like a, you know, these boxers, you know, that win the titles. It looked, reminded me of one of those type of belts. Now they all get multi, Million. whatever bonuses <laughs> when they get, when they when they win the pennant. But back then it was, it was um, uh, these uh, oh, you know that sort of thing in you know a small stipend you know that today wouldn't uh, attract anybody's interest. Well, you know when when you mentioned about the growth of sports and and so forth, I couldn't help but remember when we had Congressman Jim Clyburn on and and he was part of a baseball team rural baseball team that played every weekend 
and that was a, a huge part of the African-American community life down there in Sumter County. Yes, uh, and, and there are still pockets of that. There is a, a, a team on, at, on Highway 521 that uh, was featured in a, a photo exhibit we had at the State Museum in the early 2000s. And little teams all along that highway play from April through September. And they get no notoriety, but there they are playing every weekend. And some very vicious rivalries have been created <laughs> out of that. But if I may add one other thing that's fascinating that we know little about today is, is the rivalries between black high schools before integration. Uh, those were huge. And one of the top teams, high school teams, with the, still a very significant record group today, was out, came out of Union. From about 1948 to 1951, they had a 96-game unbeaten record, and it's still the third best record in high school football today. Uh, and that's something I discovered when I did a football exhibit. In Columbia, the rivalry was between C.A. Johnson High School, which still exists, and Booker T. Washington High School, which closed uh, in the 1970s. That was a huge one uh, that uh, I'm trying to, f to find people to interview about because it's a fascinating rivalry that has been forgotten except for those alumna and a, and a few others that are still around. Well, you mentioned all the ancillary things. You talked about the cheerleaders. The marching bands were a big deal, too. And Booker T. Washington High School, there were the Golden Tornadoes. Yes. But they had the Marching 100, and you just didn't say you wanted to be in the Marching 100. You actually had to try out, and you didn't just get to repeat the next year. You had to try out every year. It was an extremely competitive uh, it was, and I interviewed one of those band members, and they, uh, he, he graduated in 66, and he remembers them uh, going up to Washington for the, I think, uh, for the New Year's parade. Uh, uh, well, no, Thanksgiving, I think, uh, I think it was. But at any rate, uh, that was a huge thing. But as you said, they really had to work uh, to get in, and then they practiced very extensively. Well. Mrs. Fanny Phelps Adams for many years was assistant principal there, and she just, you know, people talk about the sports competition, and I can remember her saying, it's nothing like trying to get into the Marching 100. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, and, and small towns too, everybody had their, you know, their, their marching band. And I just, you may not have seen this, Fritz, but I just saw a photograph, at, I was down and doing some work at the university on university history, and they're had a marching band from 1923. And the best way I can describe it, it was all male, um, and it looked like their uniforms were sort of like the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. M very military, and it was all brass and drums. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, so. yeah. TJ, you've already mentioned that the Humanities Council has, we've had, what, four of these museums on Main Street? If I'm out in Pillion, for example, how do I, does my organization apply to for the Museum on Main Street program? That's a wonderful question because um, we're really pleased that we have just confirmed with the Smithsonian the next Museum on Main Street exhibit that the Humanities Council of South Carolina will be bringing to the state in 2017 is called The Way We Worked, and it's about American labor history. I think that'll be really a really good match for South Carolina and the timeline is actually going to we're going to open the request for proposals in June with a deadline in October um, for a selection to be one of the host sites for 2017's The Way We Worked tour. And we need to remind folks they don't have to have a museum in order to apply. That's right we've partnered with libraries we've partnered with um, universities actually um, the um, New Harmonies exhibit was at Southern Wesleyan University in Central South Carolina. As you know, we've partnered with a church <laughs> to host the exhibit. So um, whatever um, local organization that wants to t take on the process of applying, um, as long as they can find a venue that can fit 800 square feet, we're willing to, to work with them. And I'm going to ask you to give the contact information to Alfred, which we can post that link on our Walter Edgar Journal's website so folks can do that, or go straight to the Humanities Council website. But we will, we will do that link. And when you mentioned Americans at Work, I saw Allison light up because all I could think of is 
I guarantee you they're going to be putting in something. <laughs> for 20... I don't know. We might need to rest for a little bit. <laughs> but, I mean, what I was thinking of was the labor strike in Honeopath that occurred in 1933. That's what I was thinking. Wow. I mean, you know. Well, and, of course, textiles were the lifeblood of both of those communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's something that up until the last 10 years nobody talked about. Yeah, the strike, yes. Mm-hmm. So, Fritz, do you see a, a role for you in the next exhibit? I could. Yeah, that's <laughs> fascinating. I mean, uh, textile history is, a, is amazing. And then, of course, you know, uh, agriculture is so important as well to our state. Well, that, but labor covers a, I mean, a, a work. Until 1960, or as late as 1960, we were still a, a majority rural state, and the majority of the cotton crop in that year was still picked by hand, mm-hmm. much of it upstate. Mm-hmm. Um, My father picked cotton. By white labor. So, you know, you think of Wink Prince down at uh, Coastal Carolina, mm-hmm. agriculture. TJ, you may have to have more than one. For the, for the, seriously, for that, you may have to have more than one scholar involved because agriculture, textiles, tobacco. I mean, tobacco would be part of agriculture, but the way we work, domestic labor. Yeah, huge. I mean, it, it covers a wide... <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that local communities could kind of develop that idea to do their local exhibit, to develop local programming. Like Allison was saying, the Humanities Council gives a grant to each host community that's selected to do these collateral programs. So there's a lot of different directions that the way we worked could take for local communities. Absolutely. And I would like to encourage any organization out in South Carolina to apply because the process is one that TJ is willing to help you through to present uh, a, a good application to the, the board that makes the final decision. But she's willing to say, you know, maybe you need to consider this, or maybe it would be good to consider this, or, and help you through that process to have a really good application for it. And it's a wonderful opportunity for the Humanities Council to be involved with these um, these local communities because a lot of the, the applications that we get through our general grants program are from Columbia or from Charleston or from Spartanburg and Greenville. The Museum on Main Street program is a wonderful way for us to reach into some of the other counties of the state and work with some communities that we don't always get to work with. And once we've had an introduction to a local organization like BAMA, we end up having an ongoing partnership with them, which is wonderful. BAMA has come to the Humanities Council for grants through our regular grants program since they've had key ingredients in 2008, and now, of course, they have hometown teams. So we've developed a wonderful partnership that we're excited about in, in Belton. Well, the places where hometown teams are going to exhibit, we've already talked about Denmark, we've gone through Denmark, Gaffney, Belton, Georgetown, Slater, Manning. Georgetown's the biggest place. Well, Georgetown and Manning, but still small communities, and Slater may be the smallest of all. So I think that's just great. It is. It's it's wonderful. And the, the intention of the Museum on Main Street exhibit is to go to communities that have 20,000 or less people. Georgetown just squeaked in under that, I think. But like you said, Slater is probably the smallest community that we've worked with through all our years of history on the Museum on Main Street program. And um, they have one part-time staff person with the Traveler's Rest Historical Society who's working on the program. But otherwise, it's an all-volunteer committee that's pulled together to bring the exhibit to Slater. And it's, and you said the one in Denmark was all volunteer. It was completely volunteer. And well, they had over 1,600 people come to the exhibit, which, considering that they don't have a museum venue there, that's you know an amazing accomplishment that they um, brought so many people, so many school groups. They had lots of middle school and um, elementary school school groups come through the exhibit that was on display there. And they were very, very pleased with with everything that well, happened. school children, and, and we already know from Allison that, that Bama has got school children involved in this process. And, and that, for those of us who care about history and culture in South Carolina, that's important for the, next, for the younger generation to be involved and appreciate South Carolina history. Hometown teams house Sport Shape America, Smithsonian exhibit in six towns in South Carolina, Began in Denmark, it'll end in Manning, but in between it's going to be at, at other places. Uh, you can check the website, 
for the Humanities Council for those locations. Or you can go to the Smithsonian itself. It's got the South Carolina places right there, right there online. It's a great way to to share our history with other folks. So I want to thank T.J. Wallace from the Humanities Council and Fritz Hamer, Carolinian Library, who's the state scholar for this program, and Allison Darby, the education coordinator at the Belton Area Museum Association. Great to have you all on the journal. Good to be with you. Thank, thank you very you. much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was a very interesting conversation, and I think Allison Darby from the Belton Area Museum Association made an excellent point, and that is there's not a place in South Carolina that can't make a connection with the wider world, whether it's sports, agriculture, the movies. But in this case, the little town of Belton was able to link itself through sports to the country at large. It was a lot of fun to have Allison Darby from Bama, T.J. Wallace from the Humanities Council, and Fritz Hamer to talk about hometown teams, how sports shape America. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be John Shelton Reed, and we'll talk about his latest book, Dixie Bohemia, A French Quarter Circle in the 1920s. There was an interesting alliance going on between the artists, the Bohemians, who began to move into the French Quarter, into this slum. They were sort of the shock troops of this movement, but the money came largely from society women uptown. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, South Carolina Public Radio, Friday at noon.